I am a man. Now, you may think I've made some kind of silly mistake about gender or maybe that I'm trying to fool you because my first name ends in A and I own three bras and I've been pregnant five times. When I was born, there actually were only men. People were men. They all had one pronoun, his pronoun. So that's who I am. I'm the generic he, as in, if anybody needs an abortion, he will have to go to another state. Or, a writer knows which side his bread is buttered on. That's me, the writer, him. I'm perfectly willing to admit that I may be, in fact, a kind of second-rate or imitation man, a pretend-to-him. What it comes down to, I guess, is that I'm just not manly. Like Ernest Hemingway was manly. The beard and the guns and the wives and the little short sentences. Ernest Hemingway would have died rather than have syntax or semicolons. I use a whole lot of half-assed semicolons. There was one of them just now. That was a semicolon after semicolons and another one after now. And another thing, Ernest Hemingway would have died rather than get old. And he did. He shot himself. A short sentence. And that brings up the real proof of what a mess I have made of being a man. I'm not even young. Just about the time they finally started inventing women, I started getting old. And I went right on doing it. Shamelessly. I have allowed myself to get old and I haven't done one single thing about it. With a gun or Botox or anything. That I grew up in a household that was kind of unusual. Well, it was highly intellectual. My father was a professor at Berkeley, and it was life was full of refugees from Europe, mostly Jewish, and uh, various Native Americans that were friends and informants from my father's, what they used to call informants in, in anthropology. That's people that would talk to you. Well, it's, you know, it's not every Indian that wants to talk to an anthropologist, even then. But he had many dear friends, and, and some of them would come and stay with us and so on. So, I mean, I, I grew up in this kind of weird household where we were completely middle-class Americans, but the doors and windows were all open to all kinds of other ways of living. And that was, I think, the most unusual thing in my upbringing. There was a consciousness of, we live this way, but it's not the only way to live. That opened my doors and windows to imagining other societies, uh, other planets, different futures, and so on. The whole Ishii story was before I was born, and my father never talked about Ishii. I think the whole thing was very painful to him still. Ishii died of tuberculosis after only a few years among the whites. It's amazing how many Americans still resist the fact that we committed genocide quite deliberately in places like California. The issues are still alive, but you know, America is a very racist country, so it's not just the Indians. And my father had worked with remnants of tribes for years, and he and Ishii had been personal friends, and so I think the whole thing was just pretty hard. He was not a man who liked to reminisce and talk about old times either. So, so I just I never heard anything about Ishii until my mother started writing the book, essentially. But the situation of a man being the last of his people, being alone among strangers all the rest of his life, an awful lot of my stories involve a character who is the only one of his or her kind. Now, of course, <laughs> it's also occurred to me that all adolescents feel that way, you know. There isn't anybody else like me, and I am alone in this awful world with these weird rules that I don't understand. And it's also a very science fictional 
situation? Well, yeah, there are a good many Native American peoples who do not like to speak their own name, or it can be rather rude to have their name spoken. Names are powerful. There's a whole branch of magic, after all, in, in many, many cultures, which is naming magic. If you know the true name of the thing, you have power over the thing or the person. That's the basic magic I used in Earthsea. Come on, I'm here. It is I, get the Sparrowhawk, and I summon my shadow. What's it to you, my name? The fog blew through the faceless vagueness of its head. Yet it was shaped like a man, only deformed and changing like a man's shadow. Ged veered the boat once more, thinking he'd run his enemy to ground. In that instant, it vanished, and it was his boat that ran aground, smashing up on shoal rocks that the blowing mist had hidden from his sight. He was pitched nearly out, but grabbed hold on the mast staff before the next breaker struck. And this was a great wave, which threw the little boat up out of the water and brought her down on a rock, as a man might lift up and crush a snail's shell. I'd been asked to, to write a fantasy for teenagers uh, by the editor of a small press in Berkeley, Parnassus, and this was the first time I'd ever been asked to write anything. I'd, I'd just been bombarding editors with things. But he wanted uh, what we now call a young adult. And because the book was to be for young people, I guess, is what put it in my head, that all the wizards in all the books that I had read were old, old white men with white beards and white hair and peaky caps, you know. But you can't be an old man without having been young. And it occurred to me, what, you know, well, how does a wizard, how does he start out? And, well, obviously he's got a lot to learn. So where do you learn things? You learn them in school. So you go to wizard school? Okay, now I'm telling you, this is 1967. There have been other wizard schools. And the idea of learning a really difficult, dangerous craft, a, a power such as wizardry would be, that kind of gave me the shape of the book right there. Because, okay, I've got a boy who knows nothing, and he's got to learn all this stuff. And so he's going to blunder his way into magic. He's going to have to learn it by doing it all wrong, which is mostly how we do learn things, right? And also, the bigger your gift for something is, probably the more you have to learn. If you're not going to be a very good violinist, you don't have to learn as much. But if you're going to be a great violinist, you know, you're going to be practicing your whole life long. So I, I kind of had this picture of what this poor kid was up against. And he, he came alive to me right away. He's an impatient, unruly boy. He doesn't pay attention to what the wise people tell him, even the wizard who gives him his true name. Uh, even when he gets to the island of Roke, where the, where the wizard school is. He's a really good student, but, you know, he just does it too easily. And he has quickly made an enemy there of a, a snooty student called Jasper, who puts him down all the time, and made a very good friend of a, a slightly older boy called Vetch. Did you do that? I didn't. You must have done it without knowing. A spell of summoning the dead. That, that's not what I, what I, I, I can't, no, it can't grow. I think one only kind of gradually realizes reading A Wizard of Earthsea that uh, nobody in it is white except the villains, but it's sort of just introduced quietly. And 
the fact that I was never sort of, I didn't rub the reader's face in it or anything. And it was, that was one of my more conscious political maneuvers, really. Why not? Why, why should fantasy, why should they all be so lily white? This is interesting, and I don't know why it is. It's only recently that readers have written me and said that I read your books 30 years ago because they were the only fantasy books that had colored heroes and heroines. But they didn't tell me then. It was like there's, there's a shyness, a timidity there, which is terrible. But it's lovely to hear it now. I always thought of my mother as being kind of a feminist, and she she gave me three guineas to read when I was an adolescent. Now that's a pretty that's pretty strong meat for the 1940s. Uh, you know, Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas, which is a very angry book, and I ate it up. And I, well, then when the women's movement really got going again in the 70s, my mother declared firmly that she'd never been a feminist, which was disturbing. Uh, to me, but uh, I had to kind of re-educate myself as a writer to write as a woman. The little piece I wrote about I am a man, that's what that is about. In order to be uh, taken seriously as a writer, you more or less had to write as a man about things that interested men. I pretended to be a man in my writing for many years because writing was male. Mysteries, you could be a woman. Westerns, I don't think you could. But in science fiction, you, you look at the writers before me, and a lot of them were pen names or just initials. Being a gendered being is, is a very complicated business. I had seen two figures on the snow. Isolated. isolated and together. Back in the, the 60s is when we started actually talking about gender and saying, what is it? Is it completely physiological? Are we all gendered at birth, you know, and have to be a boy or a girl and love pink or love shouting or whatever, you know? How much of it is socially constructed? So the book was a thought experiment. What happens if you take gender away from people for most of the month? What's left? Are they going to be human? And it seemed to me that yes, yeah, they were. Which kind of means to me that a lot of the construction of gender is almost indubitably social, that it's the gender is enforced upon us by our society to a pretty considerable extent, and that actually we may be more, a lot more wishy-washy than we think we are. The fact that everyone between 17 and 35 or so is liable to be tied down to childbearing implies that no one is quite so thoroughly tied down here as women elsewhere are likely to be, psychologically or physically. A child has no psychosexual relationship to his mother and father, there is no myth of Oedipus on winter. There is no unconsenting sex, no rape. Coitus can be performed only by mutual invitation and consent. And that's, of course, one of the enormous things that has changed during the second half of my lifetime is that we now admit that gender is not just binary, that it is a whole spectrum. And this is becoming more and more accepted even in the United States, and it's wonderful. Do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. In a basement, under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. The floor is dirt a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. In the room, a child is sitting. The door is always locked, 
and nobody ever comes. But the child, who has not always lived in the room and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. What inspired me to write the ones who walk away from Omaha? The idea comes directly from William James, and Dostoevsky used it in uh, Brothers Karamazov. If the bargain is that everybody can be happy and things can be really good if one person, just one person, pays for it, and the person can be kind of hidden away so you don't, you don't have to see it happening, would you accept it? And I thought, oh, that could be a story. I could make it into a parable, as it were. I could flesh it out with scenery and kind of in intensify the question. I do feel that I should say that William Jane answered his question. He, decent Victorian man that he was, said, no, we wouldn't accept it. But was he right? I'm afraid we do, constantly. They all know it's there, all the people of Omelas. They all know it has to be there. They all understand that their happiness depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. The dispossessed, oh, something possessed me to uh, inform myself better about nonviolent resistance, Gandhiism, and that led me on into all kinds of reading, including pacifist anarchism, writers like Kropotkin and Goodman, who I found very, very stimulating and exciting. There used to be a little bookstore in downtown Portland. He had a terrific collection of anarchist writing. He kept it in the back room and you had to know him. Some of that stuff the government still considered, you know, inherently dangerous. But I got into the back room down there and I got, I got, I got to read some good stuff. I, I'm not the bomb-throwing type of anarchist, you know, but a lot of people don't make any distinction. It occurred to me there's been lots of utopias, lots of political utopias. There's never been an anarchist utopia. Hey, that'd be fun. Can I imagine an anarchist world? We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art and very often in our art, the art of words. Fantastic literature, whatever, of whatever kind, imaginative literature, can present you with alternatives to the way we do things or the way the world is. It can imagine a slightly different world where things work a little bit differently, a different society. It's making a thought experiment like physicists make, but it's also just challenging the reader, I think, and I think that's one reason young people particularly take to fantasy and science fiction. They're always young readers. It's, that's one great thing about writing imaginative literature. You always have young readers, every generation, because uh, young people are aware that the world does not have to be the way the old folks made it. There are alternatives. There are other ways to do things. Let's talk about them. So to me, that, that's kind of the particular virtue that this, these genres have over realistic fiction, which has to just say the way it really is. We have nothing to give you but our own freedom. We have no law but the single principle of mutual aid between individuals. We have no government but the single principle of free association. We have no states, no nations, no presidents, no premiers, no chiefs, no generals, no bosses, 
No bankers, no landlords, no wages. No charity, no police, no soldiers, no wars. Nor do we have much else. None of us is rich. None of us is powerful. And I'm not an anarchist because I don't walk the walk. I'm a middle class, I'm an upper bourgeois American woman with, with a family and I, I can't live the anarchist life. My books are almost automatically put on lists by the, uh, the, the people who want to, them not to be in libraries and used in schools. But that's true of almost all imaginative literature. Anything that, well, really, those people really only want the Bible to be read. And anything imaginative is considered to be, you know, witchcraft and all that sort of stuff. My Earth is all ruined. A planet spoiled by the human species. We multiplied and gobbled and fought until there was nothing left and then we died. We controlled neither appetite nor violence. We did not adapt. We destroyed ourselves. But we destroyed the world first. There are no forests left on my earth. The air is grey, the sky is grey, it's always hot. It is habitable. It is still habitable. But not as this world is. There are nearly half a billion of us now. Once there were nine billion. You can see the old cities still everywhere. The bones and bricks go to dust. But the little pieces of plastic never do. They never adapt either. We failed as a species, as a social species. I wasn't a bit ahead of the curve. This was everything we're talking about now was becoming common knowledge among scientists in the 60s, at least, and earlier, that what we were doing was leading to the complete degradation of natural resources and, and the oceans and the atmosphere. And that has been common knowledge for decades, and I was in no way prescient. I was just using the warnings that the scientists kept putting out and nobody was listening. So they were voices crying in the wilderness, and I was just crying with them. I wanted to talk about messages. What I want to put into question is the idea that is so widespread that a story must have a message, that a story is a vehicle for a sermon, as it were, and if not, that it's merely trivial entertainment. I'm afraid that, that some of this is quite unwittingly taught in schools a great deal, where children are taught to, what is the message of the story you just read? Well, a story can mean a lot without having any identifiable message at all. I'm inclined to think that the less explicit its meanings are, the more powerful they may be. Uh, and there I think of Shakespeare. Uh, what does the tempest mean? What's the message? It's got a thousand messages for a thousand different people. So what I think I'm talking about is, is intellectualizing fiction and art. And thinking that all there is to be got out of it really is, is this sort of a meaning that can be put into words and, of course, quoted on an exam paper. That's partly where the trouble starts. Where a story happens as, as you write it, as you tell it or hear it, or as you read it, where a story happens is in your head, sure enough, but it's also in your body and in your heart, in your feelings. If it doesn't happen there, and I think the, the real message that every story Every piece of imaginative fiction tells us, and, and also uh, even memoir, is that uh, we can be other people. We can live other lives. We can live them as we read.
No other art empowers us in quite that way. Not even drama, not even the movies, because we watch those. They are there and we look at them. But reading a book is nothing. It's black marks on paper. We make the book as we read it. And therefore, when you become a character in a book, you become them in a, in a deeper way than I think any other way. When you take on another life in fiction, it's yours more intimately than, than in any other form. And that's what is so particularly cool about reading. At my age, well, I hope that we don't backslide. My country, where I live, is at this moment in a curious, regressive mood. Apparently people are frightened and so they want to go back to what they perceive as the old certainties. And, of course, among this is putting women back in their place. And it worries me when I see young women who aren't worried about this and who think they've sort of got it made, you know. But I don't think it's particularly my job to look ahead. I, I think the perspective from where I am in really extreme old age is uh, how much of the future can it include or should it include? I mean, it's really not my business anymore. It's your business and, and, and the young'uns. Over but in, in, in between books, one, one, one has those, those uncomfortable thoughts, like, uh, why do all women writers get forgotten extremely quickly? Who's going who's gonna to keep me alive? <laughs> Nasty thoughts like that. Is it, that's a real anxiety? <laughs> that's a real anxiety, but simply from watching what happens to women writers. It, they, they go much faster than men writers do. It's, you know, there's this kind of wish to get the women out of the way. To my three children, science fiction is not a low form of literature involving little green men and written by little contemptible hacks. It's an absolutely ordinary, respectable, square profession. It's the kind of thing your own mother does. <laughs> now, most of us here we read science fiction when young, and we hid our copy of Galaxy inside our copy of Intermediate Algebra yeah. in order to seem respectably occupied. We asked the children's librarians for SF, and they said, oh, we do not allow children to read escapist literature. And we asked the adults' librarians for it, and they said, oh, we do not carry children's books on this side of the building. <laughs> and we put the books down you know, open to hide the cover which showed the purple squid with the maiden in the bronze bra. <laughs> we had the difficulty, we had the pleasure of doing something which, if not actually illicit, was sneaky and eccentric and addictive and disreputable. Now, you know, our kids, not just my kids, but all our kids, everybody here that's too young to have any business having any kids, the rising generation, is almost entirely missing this experience. The poor things have nothing disreputable left but sex and marijuana, and sex is getting respectable all too soon. People are getting taught science fiction in the schools. Some of them may be hiding their copy of Intermediate Algebra inside a copy of, again, Dangerous Visions. <laughs> Now, I gather this co-option of science fiction into the curriculum is less usual in the Commonwealth than it is in America. But I was in England in January, and I got stuck on a telly spot. With, there were some Womblies, too. <laughs> but there were five beautiful Cockney kids from a Marylebone school, and they'd read more science fiction than I had. They'd done a whole school session reading and writing science fiction. So it's coming. In the States, it has come, and 
from St. Pancras Station to the farthest sheep station is coming. Science fiction is being taught by teachers and professors in schools and colleges. Science fiction is being seriously discussed by futurologists with computers and by literary critics with PhDs. Science fiction is being written by people who don't know Warp 5 from a Dyson Sphere. It's being read by people who don't read science fiction. I am here to proclaim unto the assembled faithful that the walls are down. The walls are down, we're free. And you know what? It's a big, cold world out there. I can't blame those of my generation and older who don't want to see the walls come tumbling down and who cling to their ghetto status as if it were a precious thing, making a religion out of science fiction which the touch of the uninitiated will profane. They were forced into that attitude by the attitude of respectable society, intellectual and literary, towards their particular interest. And it was perfectly natural for them, like any persecuted group, to make a virtue of their necessity. I don't blame them, but neither can I agree with them. To cling to a posture of evasion and defense once persecution and contempt has ceased is not to be a rebel, but to be a cripple. And what I'd like to see is science fiction to continue to rebel. I'd like to see science fiction evade not those who despise it, but those who want it to be just what it was 30 years ago. I want to see science fiction step over the old walls and head right into the next wall and start to break it down, too. There's a lot of walls yet to, to be reduced to rubble. But what I've been talking about is a bit external. The worst walls are never the ones you find in the way. The worst walls are the ones you put there. You build them yourself. All right, so here we stand. We are science fiction, a noble figure standing among the ruins, chains dropping from our giant limbs, facing the future with eagle eyes. But uh, actually, who are we, and what future are we facing with our eagle eyes? Now that we're free, where are we going? Well, from here on, I have to speak as a writer. I've been trying to speak for the community of SF writers and fans, and I've been enjoying it, but I can't keep it up. I'm faking. I am not a fan. You know, many science fiction writers are or were. They, they started as fans. It was, I think, particularly a phenomenon of the ghetto, which is now called the Golden Age. <laughs> I came along just late enough to miss the golden ghetto. I didn't even know it existed. I read science fiction as a kid, but I didn't know anything about fandom. I wrote science fiction first. I discovered it was science fiction second when the publishers told me so. And then finally third, I discovered the existence of fandom. That was in Oakland, California in 1964, which I think was the first big world con. I, I was in Berkeley and I heard there was this science fiction thing going on. I'd published three or four science fiction stories. And I was crazy about Phil Dick and Cordwainer Smith and people. And so I went down to Oakland to see what was going on. And there were about 5,000 people there. And they all knew each other, and they knew absolutely everything about science fiction since 1926. And the only one I met was Barbara Silverberg. And she was so incredibly gorgeous that I went home and put my head in a paper bag for a week. <laughs> that was the last Worldcon I attended until this one. You see, I'm an outsider. I, I'm an alien. For all you know, I come from a different galaxy, and I am here planning the overthrow of the entire Australian ballot system. <laughs> Got some supporters on that one, huh? <laughs> but all the same, I do write science fiction, and that's, I guess, why you asked me here. And so I think it would make sense if I went on and spoke as what I am, a writer, a writer of science fiction, a woman writer of science fiction. You know, I am a very rare creature. My species was at first believed to be mythological, like the Tribble and the Unicorn. Members of it survived by protective coloration and mimetic adaptation. They used male pen names. And then slowly and timorously, 
like platypuses, you know, they began to come out of hiding, looking around warily for the predators. I was forced into hiding once myself by an editor of Playboy who reduced me to a simple, unthreatening, slightly enigmatic shape, a you. Not Ursula, but you. <laughs> I've spent a, felt a little bit bent, a little bit U-shaped ever since then. But we kept creeping out. It, it took a while and there were setbacks, but gradually my species took courage and appeared in full mating plumage. Anne, Sonia, Kate, Joanna, Vonda, Susie, and the rest. But when I say the rest, please don't alarm, don't feel threatened or anything. There aren't very many of us. Maybe one out of 30 science fiction writers is a woman. That statistic was supplied by my agent, Virginia Kidd, who's a very beautiful member of my species. The ratio is a guess, but it's an educated guess. Do you find it a little startling? Because I do. I'm extremely puzzled. I'm even embarrassed by my own rarity. Are they going to have to lock me up in pens, you know, like the platypuses and the whooping cranes? and other species threatened with extinction and watch eagerly to see if I lay an egg? <laughs> Why are women so scarce in science fiction, in the literature, among the fans, and most of all among the writers? Some historical reasons come to mind. American science fiction as action, pulp fiction during the 30s, and Campbellian science fiction written for adolescent engineers. But <laughs> those are all circular reasons. Why was golden ghetto science fiction males only? Is there something in the nature of the literature that doesn't appeal generally to women? Well, not that I can see. Campbell's analog in its school certainly did follow one minor element within science fiction to the extreme, to a point where only those who really enjoy wars or wiring diagrams can enjoy it very much. Most women in our culture have been brought up to be fairly indifferent towards military heroics and wiring diagrams, so they're likely to be bored. They're used to being cut out, Juvenile males in most cultures tend to be afraid of women and to form clubs that cut them out and exclude them. Similarly, a good deal of sword and sorcery leaves most women cold because it consists so much of male heroics and male fantasies of sexual prowess, often very sadistic. But you set aside those two minor provinces for the Boy Scouts, and you got all the rest left, all this beautiful countryside of grown-up science fiction, where anything can happen and usually does. Why haven't more women moved in and made themselves at home? I don't know. My trouble is I was born here, I didn't move in. I've always been here, so I can't figure out what the problem is. Year by year, I see more members of my species, mostly young ones, coming and building temporary nests and trying out their wings above the mountains, but not enough. 20 or 30 males to one female is not a good ratio for species preservation. But I just want to ask the men here to consider idly in some spare moment whether by any chance they've been building any walls to keep the women out or to keep them in their place and what they may have lost by doing so. And to ask the women here to consider idly or not at all idly, why are there so few of us? We can't blame it on prejudice because in SF publishing, there's very little sex bias. Have women walled themselves out through laziness of mind for fear of being seen using the intellect in public or fear of science and technology, or fear of letting their imagination go, or perhaps fear of competing with men. That, as we all know, is an unladylike thing to do. But art is not ladylike or gentlemanly. It's not masculine and it's not feminine. The reading of a book, the writing of a book, isn't an act that's dependent in any way upon one's gender. In fact, very few human acts other than procreation and gestation and lactation are. When you undertake to make a work of art, a novel or a clay pot or what have you. You're not competing with anybody except yourself and God. Can I do it better this time? Once you've realized that's the only question, once you face the empty page or the lump of clay in that solitude without anybody to blame for failure but yourself, once you've known that fear and that challenge, you aren't going to care very much about being ladylike 
or about your so-called competition, male or female. The practice of an art is, in its absolute discipline, the experience of absolute freedom. And that, above all, is why I'd like to see more of my sisters trying out their wings above the mountains, because freedom is not always an easy thing for women to find. Well, so, I've got one fact about who and what science fiction is. It's very largely male, but seems to be tending always a little more towards androgyny, at least I hope so. And what else is? Well, Theodore Sturgeon once remarked that it's 95% trash, like everything else. I trust you know Sturgeon's law. But I'm, I'm in a bad mood tonight. I, I want to question Sturgeon's law. Is 95% of everything trash? Is 95% of a forest trash? Is 95% of the ocean trash? Well, it will be if we go on polluting it. But, but uh, is 95% of humanity trash? Any dictator will agree, but I don't agree with it. Is 95% of literature trash? Well, yes. <laughs> I suppose it is. Of the books now published in the world in a year, 95% probably aren't even trash. They're just noise. But I want to go back to speaking as a writer, not a reader, and inquire how many books, while they are being written, are conceived of by their author as trash. Because I think that's the real question. And it's an interesting question. I have no idea what the answer is. It's not zero percent. It's far from it. There are plenty of authors who deliberately write junk for money. And I've met many who, less cynical, still speak of their own works as potboilers or as mere entertainment, a little defensively, because the ego is always involved in the work, but also honestly, in the full knowledge that they hadn't done and hadn't tried to do the best work they could. And I think in art, from the artist's point of view, there are only two alternatives. The best you can do, or trash. It's a binary system. It's yes, no, on, off. Not from the reader's point of view. From the reader's point of view, there are infinite gradations between the best and the worst, all degrees of genius and talent and achievement between Shakespeare and the hack, and within each work, even Shakespeare's work. But from the writer's point of view, what I'm trying to say, while he's writing, there are just two ways to go. To push towards the limit of your capacity, or to sit back and emit garbage. And the really unfair thing about all this is that the intent, however good, guarantees nothing. You can try your heart out, you work like a slave, you try to do your best and you can write dribble. But the opposite intent does carry its own guarantee. No artist ever set out to do less than his best and did something good by accident. It doesn't work that way. You head for perfection and you may very well get trash. But you head for trash and by gum you get it. The quest for perfection fails about 95% of the time, but the search for garbage never fails. <laughs> now, I find this repetition of the trashiness of most science fiction too easy. It's both defensive and destructive. It's defensive. It's, don't hit me, folks, I'm down already. That's the old ingratiating ghetto attitude. And it's destructive because it's cynical. It sets limits. It builds walls. It says to the science fiction writer, of all people, why shoot for the moon? Chances are 19 to 1 you won't get there. Only a tiny elite gets there, and we all know that elite people are snobs, right? Keep your feet on the ground. Work for money, not for dreams. Write it the way the editor says he wants it. Don't waste time revising it and polishing. Sell it quick. Grind out the next one. What the hell, it's a living, isn't it? So what if it's not art, at least it's entertainment? Now that's the bit that burns me. That entertainment bit, it hides a big lie behind an obvious truth. Of course an, a science fiction story is entertainment. All art is entertainment. That's so plain, it's, it's silly to keep saying it. If Handel's Messiah were boring, not entertaining, would thousands of people go listen to it year after year at Christmas and Easter? If the Sistine ceiling were dull, would, would everybody go there and get a crick in their neck looking at it? If Oedipus Rex weren't a good show, would it be in the repertory after 2,500 years? If the first circle weren't a 
terrifically powerful and entertaining book, would the Soviet government be so scared of it? If Solzhenitsyn were a dull hack, they'd love him. He'd be writing what they want. He'd be writing to the editor's specifications. He'd be perfectly safe. He'd probably be a people's artist by now. Now, of course, some art is immediately attractive and some is very difficult, demanding an intense response and involvement from its readers. The art of your own time tends to be formidable in a time of change like ours because you have to learn how and where to take hold of it, what response is being asked of us before we can get involved with it. It's really new and therefore it's a bit frightening. I'm very easily frightened. I was even afraid of the Beatles when they first appeared. People are easily frightened, but they're also brave and stubborn. They, they want that entertainment that only art can give them. And they, it's, it's a peculiar, solid satisfaction. And, and so they will keep going and listening to weird electronic music. And they'll go stare at <clears throat> big, ugly paintings of blobs. You know. And they'll read these funny, difficult books about people on another world 20,000 years from now. And they go home and they say, well, yeah, I didn't really like it. It's, it's unsettling. It's, it's painful. It's crazy. But, you know, I kind of like that one piece where I went, it got to me, you know. Well, now, that's all art wants to do, I think. It wants to get to you, to break down the walls between us as people for a moment, to bring us together in a celebration, a ceremony, an entertainment, a mutual affirmation of understanding or of suffering or of joy. Therefore, I nastily oppose the notion that you can put art over here on a pedestal and entertainment down here in a clown suit. Art and entertainment are the same thing. The more deeply and genuinely entertaining a work is, the better art it is. To say that art is something heavy and dull and solemn and entertainment is modest but jolly and popular, that's neo-Victorianism. It's idiocy. Every artist is deeply serious and passionate about his work, and every artist also puts on a clown suit and capers for pennies. The fellows who put on the, the clown suit, but who don't care about performing well, they're neither entertainers nor artists. They're fakes. They know it, and, and we know it. They may be very popular briefly because they never frighten anybody. They reassure people by lying to them. But when the popularity blows over, the work's forgotten. What's left? You're left with a sort of a hollow place, a sense of waste, a realization that where something real could have been done, a good handsome clay pot or a good entertaining story, the chance was lost. We lost it. We accepted the fake, the plastic throwaway when we could have held out for the real thing. I'm not an antique lover, but you know how moving it can be to use or handle some object which has been handled by other people in generations before you. I've got a stone axe on my desk at home, not for self-defense, but... <laughs> Just for pleasure. My father used to keep it on his desk. Makes a good paperweight. It's New Stone Age. I don't know how old it is. It could be anything from a few centuries to 12,000 years. It's partly polished and it's partly left rough. It's very finely shaped. It's well made. When you pick it up, you can't help but think of the human hands polishing that granite. There's a sense of solidity and community and the touch and the feel of that axe to me. There's nothing sentimental about it. It's just the opposite. It's a real experience of time which is our most inward dimension and which is so difficult to experience consciously but without which we're completely disoriented in this what seems so familiar external dimensions of space if that makes any sense that's what i'm trying to say about the real work of art like a stone axe it's there it stays there it's solid and it involves the inward dimension it may be wonderfully beautiful and may be quite commonplace and humble but it was made to be used and to last hack work 
is not made to be used, it's made to be sold. It's not made to last, it's made to wear out and be replaced. And I think that's the difference between art and entertainment on one hand and trash on the other. When Ted Sturgeon made up his law, he was simply responding to contemptuous, ignorant critics of science fiction who really didn't deserve so clever an answer. But his law has been used so much as a defense and an excuse and a cop-out. I suggest that we in science fiction stop quoting it for a bit. I'd like this not to be resigned, but to be rebellious. Not cynical, but critical and idealistic. I'd like to hear us say 95% of science fiction is trash. Yuck! Let's get rid of this stuff. Let's open the windows and get rid of the garbage. Here we've got science fiction, the most flexible, adaptable, broad-range, imaginative, crazy form that prose fiction has ever attained. And we're going to let it be used for making toy plastic ray guns that break when you play with them pre-packaged, pre-cooked, pre-digested, indigestible, flavorless TV dinners, and big inflated rubber balloons containing nothing but hot air? Well, I say the hell with that. I think what our statue of science fiction needs to do is to use his eagle eyes to look at himself. A long, thoughtful look, critical look. We don't have to be defensive anymore. We aren't children or untouchables. Like it or lump it, we're now adult, active members of society. And as such, I think we have a challenge to meet. You know, if you think secretly or openly that you're second-rate, that you're 95% trash, then however much you praise yourself in your in-group, it doesn't really mean much. It's like adolescent boasting, which often reveals this horrible feeling of worthlessness. I do think science fiction is pretty well grown up now. We've been through our illiterate stage, and we've been through our latent or non-sexual stage, and we've been through the stage when you can't think of anything but sex, and all the rest of the stages, and really we do seem to be on the verge of maturity now. And when I say I'd like science fiction to be self-critical, I don't mean pedantic or destructively perfectionist. I just mean I'd like to see more science fiction readers, fans, critics, whatever, judging soundly, dismissing failures quietly in order to praise successes joyfully, to go on from them, to build on them. That's what maturity is, I guess, a just assessment of your capacities and the will to fulfill them. And we do have plenty to praise, you know. I think science fiction during the past 10 or 15 years has produced some books and stories that will last, that will be meaningful and beautiful many years from now. So when I say the ghetto walls are down and that it behooves us to step over them and be free, I don't mean that the community of science fiction is breaking up or should break up. I hope it doesn't. I think it won't. I don't see why it should. The essential lunacy that unites us will continue to unite us. The one thing that, that has changed is that we're no longer forced together into a mutually defensive posture like a circle of musk oxen on the Arctic snow attacked by wolves, you know, by the contempt and arrogance of literary reactionaries. If we meet now and in the future, we writers and readers of science fiction, to give each other prizes and see each other's faces and renew old feuds and discuss new books and hold our celebration. It will be in entire freedom because we choose to do so, because, to put it simply, we like each other. Thank you very much.